Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence. And joining us today is a neighbor from the North. She is a former member of parliament in Canada, where she served as parliamentary secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. She also happens to be the author of an upcoming book, Can You Hear Me Now? Welcome in, Selena Cesar Chavon. Hello, Adrian. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm even better after brightened by that beautiful pink blouse you are wearing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, and so Selena, like yourself, you know, can you hear me now? Is a game changer. What makes your upcoming book so unique? Well, I think it's really it's a memoir, but it really is an authentic story where I talk about. You know, my life's journey, I talk about all my mistakes, very candid about my mistakes, my vulnerabilities, my pains, my hurts. And I augment those with some of the strengths and joys and just triumphs that I've had. And, um, you know, put it together in a story that culminates my life from entrepreneurship to politics, growing up and everything in between. Wow, it sounds like it's been impactful. What really encouraged you to write this book? Well, really, it was it stemmed from my last couple of years in politics. You know, being one of 338 Black women in the 42nd Canadian Parliament, it was really important for me to ensure that my story, the history of me being there, was authentically written. And for your American viewers, some of you may or may not know that it was a challenging time. It was a time where I was gaslighted. I it received so many different kinds of challenges while I was there. I really wanted to make sure that that story was told and then go back and sort of tell my, my whole story and give the lessons that I learned as well. Wow, that definitely sounds like it's something that you had in your heart that you wanted to share. And I understand that authenticity is extremely important to you. And so when your readers walk away from Can You Hear Me Now, what message do you want them to take with them? Oh, That's a great question. I just, I want them to know that when they make mistakes, when they have pains, when they have hurts, that they're not the only, they're not the first one that's made it. First of all, they'll be able to read the book and say, Selena made a lot more mistakes than I did. Um, but then they'll also be able to know that somebody is walking with them, that they have somebody there that is very vulnerable and very open. And I think that when we tell our stories, stories are sticky. And we're able to connect a little bit more in terms of our humanity. Some of that frayed humanity that's been lost with the divisiveness of the last maybe four or five years in particular that split across the border. I think that we need to reestablish some of that. Absolutely. And you know what? Yeah, you kind of already hit the nail on the head because I want to talk a little bit about your work in politics. And from your vantage point as a Canadian with experience in this political realm, how is the recent change in administration in the United States, you know, going from Trump to Biden? How has that been viewed by those in your country when it comes to leadership? Well, first of all, I should say congratulations, Americans, for 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 pulling one out for the rest of us as well. But I know, you know what? Really, I think the focus has been 
um, 2020, talking about racial inequality. And you know, American media really consumes a lot of the oxygen globally, even here in Canada when it comes to news. But you know, Canada has its challenges as well as our government has its challenges in terms of black communities here in Canada. And sometimes that gets lost, but I, I really wanted part of the book to highlight that no matter what the title is, no matter how big that title is above my head, those inequalities, those microaggressions, that racism hits us all no matter what level we reach. Absolutely, and also as you kind of already touched upon, the fact that there are challenges and racism that go on. I have heard a lot about the indigenous community up in Canada and the mistreatment that goes on. And I know one of the reasons you got into politics was to make a bigger difference in the world. How has that experience been for you when you kind of look back on all the places you've been? Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, indigenous populations in Canada are still governed by an Indian act, which governed the, the population of the indigenous population here. And that's been in place since 1876. Um, there has been, of course, missing and murdered indigenous women. But when we look at black communities, you know, I know that your government had talked about repealing mandatory minimums. We had an opportunity to do that in 2015 when I was in government and that was not done. And we had a majority government and we still have an overrepresentation of black and indigenous people in our federal prison systems. Uh, right now, there's a class action lawsuit launched by former black employees of the federal public service. People who have worked for 20, 30 years that had never received a promotion are, are filing this suit. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things that we need to do in Canada as well. And I think that we we might be, you know, a, a beacon to the north, but there's so much work that we need to do here in terms of justice, healthcare, education, child welfare, the list goes on and on. Yes, it sounds like you've got, you know, your finger on the pulse in terms of what needs to be done. And the thing is, you're not alone because Lord knows the United States has a lot of work to do. And yes. in terms of looking in the past, you know, it seems that you were very invested in uplifting social issues such as mental health campaigns. Yes. And so when you look forward now into the future, into 2021, what change would you like to see focused on most? You know, I really want to ensure that uh, that we continue to raise awareness on mental health issues, raise awareness, most importantly, on equity. I think when we think about equity within our healthcare systems in particular, we're dealing with COVID right now. We know a disproportionate number of racialized people are impacted. Of course, it's gonna impact their mental health. We wanna get to a point where we have equitable outcomes for everyone. Yes, that is definitely something that I would like to see come to fruition. And when it comes to the approaches being taken right now with Canada in terms of politics and its own nation, where do you see things going? Well, you know, the, the city of Toronto has done a magnificent job of starting to collect race-based data or disaggregated data related to COVID. I would say that that needs to happen right across the board within all sectors so that we know exactly where the pain points are. And then we could be able to make adequate investments, adequate policies to address some of those issues. The United States does that very well in terms of collecting that data. Canada still has a long way to go. And I really want to, to see that continue as a policy change to ensure that we're addressing some of those issues. 
Yes, uh, addressing the issues and really, really kind of focusing on the needs of the people is what is extremely important for a lot of governments out there. And so hopefully we'll see more of that as we move into the future with all the issues that we have going on. And so I really wanna loop it back just a little bit because I know we don't have that much time left. But in terms of talking more about your book, Can You Hear Me Now? In terms of the process of sharing a lot of your experiences that people can take away with them, was that difficult in unearthing the past? It absolutely was, but I worked with a great editor, Ann Collins at Penguin Random House Canada. And she asked me a question very early on and said, you know, Selena, do you want this book to hurt or to heal? And I said, you know, I really wanted a book that could heal. I really wanted to be vulnerable with my story. I could have said all the great things that I've done in my life, but that's what Google's for, Adrian. You know, I wanted to sort of sure so that on this side where you see, you know, the the pictures and the house and the, you know, the great job, that there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into everybody's life. And we have those shared experiences. And I wanted people to see parts of themselves in my story. And that's sort of what we're hearing from people who are reading the book right now. So I hope it resonates with Americans just as much as it does with Canadians. Absolutely, I think that that's a beautiful thing. It sounds like you've been through your struggles and your hurdles, but you were able to contribute and to keep your eye on the prize. And so I have to ask, what's uh, what's next for you after this book resonates with so many? Um, that's just it. I, I I'm really just enjoying this moment. I'm enjoying the process of celebrating the book with people. I'm enjoying hearing them giving me feedback about which parts really spoke to them. There's a lot to unpack: relationships with mothers, immigrant parents, um, struggles through university, entrepreneurship, and politics. So there's so much to unpack. I'm just enjoying the moment of hearing these stories and and talking to people who are enjoying the book. Oh Wow, well, it sounds like it'll be an enjoyable read and I cannot wait to get my hands on it. When exactly does the book come out and where can people buy it? Well, it's available everywhere right now. It came out on February 2nd and it's launched in the United States and in Canada. And Can You Hear Me Now is is available through your local bookstores and online everywhere. So thank you. Now, Selena, with this last administration and a lot of things that have gone on, we've heard a lot of individuals in the United States and Americans say, I would love to move to Canada. What is your response to them when you hear that? Well, you know, I, I remember the the site crashing, the Canada's immigration site crashing when uh, when the Trump administration came in. And what I would really say to Americans is there's an opportunity to amplify the messages, the stories of uh, of injustices, especially to black communities, because you have those big numbers um, and you have that captivating audience. Amplify those stories around the world. There's so many people who are struggling, and it really is an opportunity to shine a lot of light on other jurisdictions that are having just as many challenges throughout their their systems, whether it's education, healthcare, or otherwise. Welcome back to more TYT's The Conversation. Evidently, professionals were busy writing books during this pandemic as we have another author for you. This time, it's epidemiologist and public health expert, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. He's the co-author of Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Welcome in, doctor. Thank you so much for having me, Adrian. Yes, so healthcare, it's a hot button issue for most Americans. 
And they're getting information from all angles. So what does Medicare for All a Citizen's Guide offer readers? Well, we know that this pandemic has demonstrated just how broken our healthcare system is to deal with the worst pandemic in over a century. And we ask ourselves why, it's because ultimately every part of the healthcare system in America is run as a business. Everybody is trying to profiteer off of it. And what happens when you have a moment like this one is that people lost their jobs as the pandemic hit, they lost their health insurance, hospitals had to cancel elective procedures, couldn't provide very basic things like PPE for their nurses and their doctors and their staff. And all of this has been part of the reason why we faced 450,000 deaths in this country and counting we account for 20% of all deaths in this country. Medicare for all is a very simple approach. We basically say take the profit motive out of health insurance. And we wanted to take this book out of the political arena and put it in the policy one. Talk about how Medicare for all maps to the challenges we face in our healthcare system. Talk about the history of this idea. It's a very, very long history, starts way back in the in the 1700s. And talk about the politics that it would take to get us there after we've had the discussion about what's wrong and how we fix it. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about that in terms of unearthing the politics to get there. What do you think needs to be done? Well, look, right now we know that the majority of Americans, when they're asked about their support for Medicare for all, for single payer health care, for government health care, whatever you want to call it, they support it. The problem, though, is that you have an extremely powerful healthcare industry that has spent an absurd amount of money lobbying and electioneering and buying ads on the airwaves to change people's perspective on this thing. And they control a lot of the kinds of conversations that are had in places like Capitol Hill. And we believe that the only way that we continue to push for Medicare for all, the way that we will win Medicare for all, is to build the kind of coalition of people who believe in a healthcare system that is more just, equitable, and sustainable than the one we have. And that means continuing to do the work on the ground. And I know that a lot of folks are really frustrated about this moment in our politics. We have a Democratic president, yes, but a president who doesn't support Medicare for all. That doesn't mean that the battle is over. It means that we've made a lot of progress and we have to keep going. But it means doing the work on the ground to build coalition, to inspire doctors to be a part of it, to bring seniors along, to bring unions along. And if we can build the right coalition, we can continue to do the work. I believe that organizing will be advertising every single day and that we will win the future for Medicare for all. All right, so you say we need to get this ground level approach. We need to organize and uplift people. You know, and I think that the American population has incentive to do it, but whether they fully appreciate that or not. But I guess in terms of maybe getting the institutions, getting capitalism on board, is there something there as well for them? Well, I'll tell you, in the past, when we had the conversation about healthcare reform, it was always a conversation in effect about low income people. And today, because of the greed of the healthcare corporations, because of the greed of the insurance industry, they've invented things like deductibles, which are $3,655 a year for the average family of four making $69,000. That's more than a paycheck, and folks can't afford it. So, this is not a conversation only about how we provide healthcare for low income people anymore. This is a conversation about how we provide sustainable healthcare for everyone because all of us have skin in the game. And then the other point is this, it's not just healthcare corporations. When you look at the incentives of large businesses and small businesses around the country, we have to make sure that people understand that this makes economic sense. When GM, I live in Detroit, and 
Uh, when GM faced bankruptcy back during the Great Recession, they were paying 15 cents on the dollar of every dollar that they made selling cars to pay for retiree health care. Um, the best way to take that off of their books is to pass Medicare for all. And if you're a small business owner, you know that providing health care for your employees is one of the hardest things you have to do every year. And so this makes sense for businesses large and small. The only people who are really against it uh, tend to be the healthcare corporations. And we need to make sure that we are talking about the fact that their incentives don't align here uh, and that we have to be able to win uh, the, the day for Medicare for all by talking about how it benefits people most of all, but also how it benefits small and large businesses in this country. All right, so as a physician, you know, specifically being an epidemiologist who studies diseases and whatnot, you know, and also being a public policy expert, you know, I would imagine that the last year has been incredibly frustrating for you as you've watched the pandemic unfold and the shenanigans and tomfoolery really come into, you know, come into play. So policy-wise, over the next six months, if you were able to mobilize people, what would you do? Look, we have to keep having this conversation about Medicare for all. Right now, we are in the middle of a national crisis. And I used to be the health commissioner for the city of Detroit. I will support any effort to get health care out to folks right now. But but we have to make sure that it's the right kind of health care. We have an opportunity right now, rather than giving money to the health care corporations that have failed us, the health insurance corporations that have failed the American public. We could be putting people who have lost their health insurance on to great public programs like Medicaid and Medicare. That's a choice we can make. We don't have to hand over good taxpayer money to the healthcare corporations that failed us in the first place. And so I really hope that we will get behind bills like those pushed by Representatives Pramila J. Paul and Senator Bernie Sanders around getting help in the form of high quality government healthcare to people. Uh, while recognizing that we have a responsibility to expand access uh, to high quality public health care uh, to everyone. And we can do both at the same time. All right, so I have a question for you. In terms of, again, turning back a little bit to our capitalistic nature, you know, there's something to be said about the fact that a lot of our health care is tethered to our employer. And thus it keeps, you know, that ball and chain to keep us in a particular workplace. And we, effectively end up maintaining a certain class of people or people at this class tiered system so that they feel indebted to their employer. And it's a pseudo slave system to a certain extent. So I guess my thoughts there are how do you overcome that that barrier that's very much built into our culture? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the talking points that people use are they confuse the conversation about choice. Right, folks scare us. The health insurance companies scare us by telling us that any real reform will take away our choice and that we are indebted to our employer because they offer us a choice of one to three health insurance options. But that's not the choice we really want. The choice we really want is the choice to see whatever doctor we want. And the reality is, is that health insurance is the biggest gatekeeper to what doctor you can see. They tell us that it's going to cost us too much that we can't afford it. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, if you look at premiums, you look at deductibles, which is the money you have to pay to get access to the health care you already paid for. Uh, you look at coinsurance and co-pays, the money you have to pay when you see a doctor when you're on private health insurance. Uh, and it is costing us an excessive amount of money. And it's costing our employers a, tr- a ton of money too. And so what we have to do is stand up and say, actually, we are the only country in the world that forces you to have uh, employment, to have something as simple and as basic that is a right as healthcare. And we have to decouple those because the system is failing. It failed us during this pandemic. It's been failing us for a really long time. Plus, even when you talk to folks in business, they'll tell you the most important thing we can do to unlock people's quote unquote human capital is to give them a choice 
to do the things that they want to do. And right now, people are stuck in dead end jobs because they're stuck with the health insurance that they have and they don't want to lose it uh, for fear of hurting themselves or their families. And so imagine we didn't have that barrier to people being off, being able to go off and start that new business or uh, being able to go off and write that book. Um, and, uh, and I think it would not only obviously be good for those folks, but also it would be good uh, for uh, for the business climate, and so you know this notion that somehow uh, investing in Medicare for all is is anti business uh, is just not true, and it doesn't it, it doesn't comport with the facts. No, it doesn't at all, and unfortunately, that propaganda mill has really been beat into so many of us who do end up staying in these jobs that do not fulfill our purpose, and we are not uh, engaged in our higher selves, but we stay because of those benefits, and that's very problematic. Yet it continues to be the case. And so one other question I wanted to ask you, since among your many titles, you also happen to have taught as a professor or continue to teach as a professor at Columbia University in the Department of Epidemiology. And forgive me, I completely and totally mispronounce that because I am not as smart as you. But I was thinking in terms of what you'd want most people to understand and to know about Medicare for all, what is that one thing? If you could talk to every individual here in the United States, what would you tell them? We have an opportunity to think and dignify our our healthcare system as a human right, rather than as a business. And right now, the corporate overlords who run health insurance companies, who run uh, big hospital corporations and chains, they are making millions of dollars a year. Meanwhile, we're paying that out of our pockets to get access to a product in which we have very, very little choice that robs our choice of the doctors that we want to see. And that makes us liable to bankruptcy to use the very thing we thought we had, right? The operative term in the word insurance is sure. And we can't really be sure of anything anymore because these deductibles and copays are so expensive. Uh, and if we lose our jobs, we lose it all. We have an opportunity to rethink that system, to guarantee every single person access to health care that does not go away, independent of what happens in their lives, that does not cost them an arm and a leg to use, uh, and that occur, that allows them to, uh, to, to to see a doctor, whichever doctor that they want in any circumstance of, of their lives. Um, we have a responsibility, a moral responsibility uh, to achieve that kind of health care justice. And if we were able, to get past the fear mongering, to get past the talking points that they keep telling us uh, that we're gonna lose or it's gonna cost us too much, um, that we can embrace a future where all of us uh, can live free of the fear of what might happen if we get sick uh, and know that that's there for uh, ourselves, our loved ones, our families and our communities. Thank you so much, doctor, I appreciate it. Thank you, I really appreciate you having me on.